Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, descend once more, we ask, like a dove, and by your Holy Spirit proclaim a word for your children listening. Amen. On New Year's Eve, I performed my 150th wedding ceremony, my 150th marriage. I've done many of them. Weddings tend to stress ministers out. They don't really seem to like to do them. I adore them, and because of that, I do a lot of them. When I lived in Memphis, our church had a little wedding chapel, and uh, we would catch the overflow from, uh, from Graceland. <laughs> it was a beautiful little chapel. I did tons of weddings. I do, sometimes I would do several uh, in a week. Um, Following the Supreme Court's ruling on marriage equality, I did 45 marriages in two weeks in the city of Kalamazoo. And I was honored to perform the first marriage in the county uh, for a same-sex couple uh, that same day that the ruling uh, was issued. The mayor signed the first marriage license. Uh, That was the deal we'd worked out in advance. He was very excited by the ruling as well. Many of those weddings I did, the people had been in relationship with each other for 30 years or more. Um, It was a a banner day. Pastors do funerals and baptisms in the Catholic Church. They say we hatch, match, and dispatch. Um, I love all of it. It's a huge... uh, uh, It gives me a great deal of joy and passion to be with people during these milestone events. Baptism is a little bit of a tricky matter in the United Church of Christ. We baptize people as an outward sign of an inward covenant. In the UCC, we baptize children and infants and adults. We'll baptize you at any point in your life. That was a bit of an issue when we were being created because some of our sibling denominations, our sister churches, the churches I served in in the South were part of the Disciples of Christ. They don't do infant baptism. They do believer baptism because they believe that part of being baptized, you have to to say some important words and babies can't talk. Um, We do both. In the UCC, we do what we call covenant baptism, and this is when I baptize babies and small children. The people who take the vows on behalf of the infant hold on to those vows for them until they're old enough to be confirmed. And at that point, we give the vows to the child if they choose to receive them. That's why when we baptize uh, little babies, we typically have godparents as well, because it's hard work holding on to somebody else's baptismal vows. It takes a village. I ask the children of the church and the whole church to help us carry those vows for that little baby. It's it's not an easy task. we got to remember them. Um, I ask the parents and the godparents the same exact questions. The godparents don't play second fiddle uh, uh, in the baptism. Their responsibilities are just as, uh, as serious as the responsibilities of the parent. But too, likewise, I will do believer baptism. A person who's not already baptized, who appears... I put on my camel hair and gird up my loins with leather, and I eat locusts and wild honey. And I, no, I don't do any of that stuff. I've done many baptisms in uh, living water. Say I baptized people in a, in a lake. 
When you baptize somebody in a lake, you gotta, you got to prepare ahead of time. Because a lot of the times you get to the lake and you don't know how deep it is. And it's really hard to baptize somebody in two feet of water. You've got to get out there far enough to where you can really get them under. In the disciples' churches, we would have a baptistry, uh, a font, uh, big enough, uh, kind of like a hot tub, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the sanctuary. And uh, as was the tradition in Memphis, I would baptize the little girls on uh, Easter Sunday and baptize the little boys on Pentecost. And the little girls and boys would have their, their white robes on. And they were special robes. You couldn't use the acolyte robe because they'd float. You try to baptize a 70-pound little child in one of those floating robes and you get it kind of smooshing down. <laughs> the baptism robes would have little fishing sinkers uh, woven into the hems to keep them from, from sinking. And I'd go and we'd do the baptism on, on Easter Sunday. We would do the baptism uh, at the very beginning of service. So then during that first hymn, uh, I would have time to run backstage and take off my gown and my waders that I would wear under my gown and put on a new robe. And the little girls would be back there doing their hair and putting on their Easter Sunday outfits and that stuff. And the moms would be back there with makeup. And the little girls would be given a white Bible on their baptism Sunday by the women of the church. And I didn't know what that was about until I started doing weddings down there. That white Bible that they received on their baptism was the Bible that they would carry down the aisle with them in their weddings. We don't typically carry flowers up here, but in the, in the Mid-South, they'd carry that white Bible, their baptism Bible, down with them. Baptism was intimately connected to the events of their lives. And when I would do funerals uh, for the women of that church, up front, they would, right by the casket, would be a white Bible, their baptism Bible, often the Bible that they carried in their, in their marriage. These events, these milestone events, are the ways in which God has given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is this ineffable web of lived experience that descends upon us like a dove. And God gave that Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ in His baptism. Like the wise men, who come from afar, speaking a strange language, bringing gifts to this uh, impoverished infant born in Bethlehem. So too, God sends the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel according to Mark, it is a very intimate event. Jesus comes up out of the water of baptism, and it says, Immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And I'm always careful to point out, because when people read this story, they miss it. They think that the heavens opening and the dove descending is, is a sign. It's a sign of God's love for Jesus Christ, a sign of his Messiahship. It's a sign given for all the people standing around the Jordan River, watching, proof that he's special. But nowhere in the Gospel of Mark does it say that that is a sign that is given to the people. It is given to him. The Gospel writer is careful to say that when he, when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened. He saw it. Immediately he saw the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, with thee I am well pleased. There's no indication whatsoever that that commandment, that that, that, that heavenly word, that that holy dove is for anybody other than Jesus himself. And there is no mention that anybody other than Jesus sees it. That individual love, that compassion that God gives through the Holy Spirit is for the individual. For the individual. 
We joke and, uh, and marvel at the gifts that it says that these wise Persian Zoroastrians brought to this Jewish Messiah. They bring him gold and frankincense and myrrh. A lot, is, a lot of meaning is placed on those things. Gold, because he's a king, I think they say, and frankincense. Uh, don't really... Frankincense is for anointing a body uh, as it's being prepared for burial. And myrrh is an ancient analgesic. It's something that can, uh, that can uh, numb pain. Um, that doesn't say that in the Bible. We kind of added that later. It doesn't say that there were three wise men in the Bible. There could have been a thousand. We don't know. It doesn't say. We just pick three because there were three gifts. No, we don't know why they gave him those gifts. And what's more, I think it's very strange to give gifts like that to a baby. It doesn't say that he was a baby either. He could have been six years old for all we know when they showed up. But the gifts really, I think, uh, uh, are an indication that there's something special. We give those gifts individually to this baby as though a baby would know what to do with myrrh or frankincense or gold. It would make much more sense for them to give the gifts to his parents, but they don't. This gift giving, this agency that people from outside of our lives practice in our lives is a sign and a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It is a sign and a symbol of the Holy Spirit. When we were at that food truck Wednesday night, giving out food to people. Um, Barb, I think you ta- taught JoJo to say uh, Happy New Year to folks when they pulled up. Uh, it was so beautiful. It, 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 she would lean into the windows of their car and say, Happy New Year! And they would say, ah! You know. <laughs> Give them the food. I, I, I never know what to say to people. I always say thank you. Thank you for coming. God sends strangers, outsiders, into these very intimate moments. The birth of a child. The baptism in the water. God sends outsiders into our lives, and we have to decide how we will receive them. There are very few things that can be said about the Bible, cover to cover. It's grace. There's no part of this book that God did not want us to receive for some purpose. It's grace from cover to cover. The New Testament doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't somehow supersede the Old Testament. God doesn't change. But if there is one thing that can be said about this book, is, is that the presence of outsiders, strangers, immigrants, wanderers, that that is a deeply holy and mystical encounter. There's no room in this book for nationalism. It's just not in there. It doesn't show up. You can try to put it in there with a shoehorn if you want, but it doesn't play nice. God doesn't seem to glorify or sanction uh, the invisible lines that we draw on maps. And what's more, throughout the New Testament, it appears that God has stopped sanctioning or glorifying our other divisions, be they cultural or religious divisions. These wise men were not Jews. They were not Judeans. As I said, I joked, they were probably Zoroastrians. Zoroastrianism had been around for seven, eight hundred years by the time Jesus was born. Probably came from Iran. We celebrate Iranian Zoroastrians at Christmas? We do. Here they are. 
But that is the way that God appears to operate. By bringing people from outside in. And then it is incumbent upon us to decide whether or not we will open ourselves to the gifts that they bring. We put up a lot of barriers to people coming into our country. Used to be just uh, bureaucratic administrative barriers. Now we, we actually went and built a wall. That's wild to me. That's wild. We say things about immigrants that aren't true. I saw on the news somebody said they're bringing crime into our, into our cities. It's absolute bunkus. It's nonsense. Immigrants commit violent crimes at half the rate of the native-born population. You're literally safer, twice as safe in a room full of immigrants than you are in a room full of non-immigrants. Quite the opposite. They bring gifts. And we build walls to keep them out. Well, I think that if we are going to take seriously these events, these, these, these moments of blessing, be they a baptism, the birth of a child, a marriage, be they the, 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 the Holy Spirit descending like a dove into our lives and God saying to us, with you I am well pleased, we have to open ourselves up to the presence of strangers, outsiders, wanderers, people who show up. And not to put too fine a point on it, but in many cases in the Bible, those people, those strangers, those outsiders, those are angels. Those are actual agents of God. A agents of God who appear as strangers. It is, um, it is easy. It is easy to choose to close the doors. It is easy to say no to outsiders. It is hard to say yes. It is hard to accommodate guests. It is hard to welcome them, especially if they don't speak the same language we do, they don't eat the same food that we do. But being a disciple sometimes means that we choose to do the hard thing when we would prefer to do the easy thing. The book of Acts is a story of men and women from different countries, different cultures, speaking different languages, with different religious traditions. People who would be, it would be perfectly natural for them to want nothing to do with each other. And all of them sharing in this thing called the Holy Spirit. Paul gives them the Holy Spirit through this baptism that we just heard about. The Holy Spirit is utterly unbound by human borders. It cannot be limited by language or culture or religion. It comes by means of water and it spreads like fire. It is wherever we are when we choose to open ourselves up to the practice of hospitality. In the United Church of Christ, we're fond of talking about radical hospitality. It's kind of a weird combination of words. But I am now convinced that there is perhaps nothing that we can do that is more revolutionary as Christians than choose to practice hospitality. 
in a world where the prevailing message seems to be one of scarcity, where you've got to hustle, the dog-eat-dog world. What a nonsense statement, dog-eat-dog. Dogs don't eat dogs. In a world out there that has commodified everything down to a dollar value, where people go hungry while food sits spoiling by the side of the road, to choose to be agents of hospitality, to choose instead to go out there and say the radical thing that there is, in fact, enough to go around. There's plenty. Plenty for everybody. There's enough food. There's enough clothing. There's enough housing. Housing. What a maddening thing to me. You know, for every... Uh, I sat down once and did the math after the most recent census. Because we have a, we have a significant homeless population in Kalamazoo. About 1,200 people sleeping rough. There were 11 empty residential units for every single homeless man, woman, and child in that town. 11. Now, maybe half of them weren't up to code. But is it any less bizarre that there are five or six empty homes for every homeless person in town? It is impractical. It is insane. And it is at odds with this book. With what we're given and taught. Whether the Holy Spirit comes into our lives through fire or water. Whether the strangers appear in our lives coming from a different country, speaking a different language, using a different name for God. Or they show up in our lives after a period of sojourning and separation. We have a choice to make in that very instant. We can choose to say yes or we can choose to say no. I want to say yes. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to, I don't want to run the risk of getting to the end of this thing, this life. Standing before God and saying, why didn't you show up? God said, I did. I showed up in 1997. I, uh, I showed up knocking on your door. You said no. I don't want to run that risk. So I say yes for, for pretty selfish reasons. But I think that as a church, we've got to decide collectively whether we're going to be the church that says yes or no. And I want us to be the church that says yes. Beloved of God, the Holy Spirit will appear in your life this week, either by water or by fire. I don't know. Commit yourself right now during this time to saying yes when it appears, even though saying no might seem uh, more pragmatic and practical in the moment. Practice radical hospitality. It will benefit you. Because many times they come bearing wondrous gifts. And many times they come upon the wings of God's own Holy Spirit. That is transformative. It is revolutionary. It is quite radical. And it is simply an expression of the Bible that we've been given. Embrace that and that practice. And then come back and tell me about it. Tell each other about it. Share where you saw it happen. That's why we have a, these get-togethers once a week. is to report back. Don't forget to do that part. Amen? Amen.